to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Urban environments, city sounds, and nostalgia influence composer Jennifer Jolly's work. She is the co-founder of North American New Opera Workshop, an opera company devoted to developing and staging short contemporary operas by emerging North American composers. She also authors one of my favorite blogs, Why Compose When You Can Blog. She teaches music composition and theory at Ohio Wesleyan University, and this fall she'll be writing a new work for the Vermont Symphony Orchestra as part of their Made in Vermont Music Festival. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. I like to start these conversations by going back, and feel free to take us as far back as you'd like, but tell us about how you got started with music and studying composition and writing your first works. Sure. Well, um, I initially had an interest in composing music in high school. Um, I think the reason why I got interested in it is because I really liked film scores. And unfortunately, I didn't try composing music earlier because I didn't think I had any original ideas whatsoever. Didn't see myself as a composer. And now as a uh, self-proclaimed postmodernist, I realize I just have no original ideas to begin with. I just put them all together. But um, it started with that. I thought it would be really cool to write for films and especially have your music in surround sound and so I was like I'm gonna do this I'm just gonna start sketching things more of like telling stories and scenarios and I know that or I knew at the time that the University of Southern California had this like film scoring emphasis program with the Bachelor of Music and Composition and so that's what got me started I was very gung-ho wanting to study at USC and do this thing so did growing up in Los Angeles influence this interest in film music or was it just uh, did it have anything to do with being right there in LA or this was just something that you got interested in on your own? I I wonder if being from LA did influence me to go into film music. I, I actually think it was the Dolby surround sound. I was just like, the speakers are just so sexy. And it's just like, <laughs> yes, I can, I can, you know, when you go into a theater, you can sometimes feel your music or feel the music that's in the movie. So that maybe it was the speakers. I don't know. So what, uh, you're you're talking about film music. What film composers were? I mean, is there anything in particular you can point to? Is like that's the film, that's the composer that really, you know, turned me on to to wanting to do this. I'm thinking off the top of my head, John Williams. Uh, when I was in high school, that's when the Star Wars films were back in the theater before those um, interesting prequels that we now have. Um, so I'd say primarily John Williams. Um, I was also into um, Aaron Copeland at the time, and I knew that he also wrote for film. I was also interested in like the, um, I think I had one or two recordings of some kind of Shostakovich films and just anything actually specifically sci-fi generated because that's when I felt like you got to experiment with music. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. what does music on other planets sound like or things like that? Great. So did you actually write any film music or... No, I, I think I more wrote scenarios. So um, I, the high school I went to is the Orange County High School of the Arts, and I think it's now Performing Arts. They've kind of changed their name. But um, there was an interesting opportunity. The um, instrumental music conductor at the time, and still is, uh, Christopher Russell, he um, was quite instrumental in um, signing up me and this other friend of mine to um, do this program with the L.A. Phil. Um, at the time, they're doing Tobias Pickler's uh, new opera, Fantastic Mr. Fox. So there is an operatic version of that story. Mm. And as part of that outreach program that the L.A. Phil did, they um, had us write 
kind of like a group composition of um, the telling the story of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Okay. So I did that as like a scenario. We kind of presented it before one of the matinee performances there. Um, but I, I sadly, I never actually, no, I did do like a couple of shorts when I ended up going to USC. Like I knew someone, but I wasn't really outgoing and that kind of fizzled, unfortunately. <laughs> So, and then uh, after USC, then you made your way to Cincinnati. I was joking with uh, with one of our other guests last week about uh, we should just call this podcast the Cincinnati Connection because all of us seem to have that in common. <laughs> I've reached out to, you know, people that I have something in common with to start the show. Uh, right. But, but any, at any rate, you made your way from USC to Cincinnati, and you're currently in Ohio. So did, uh, how did you make the transition? Well, um, interesting side note that um, you and your listeners may not know about. I um, I actually, after USC, I was like, I'm going to take some time off. And my partner and I decided to move to Vermont, uh, which was random. Um, oh. So I just like hung out in Vermont for four years. And that's when I actually experienced snow for the first time, which actually did prepare me for Ohio. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> like the scraping of the windshields and that the fun business that like I am certainly experiencing right now. Um, but uh, I would say, how did I transition? Well, um, in between my time off, I did go to, um, oh, what's it? It's called Upbeat Croatia. It's, it's a program in Croatia of all places where they have like, like an international, um, study and, um, a professor who teaches there, Joel Hoffman actually does the summer program in Croatia. And that's actually how I was introduced to him. And through going to this one composition seminar, which he also included, um, improvisation, which I found very interesting. Um, I knew he taught at Cincinnati. And so that's actually how I was introduced to Cincinnati and, I don't know if that necessarily prepared me, but it's it's just kind of like a way in, kind of like, oh, maybe I maybe I should go to Cincinnati. I've only heard of the TV show since I'm from LA. <laughs> right, the WKRP is what you're talking about. Yep, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Great. So, um, and now you're based in, um, at, well, you're teaching uh, composition and theory at Ohio Wesleyan University. So, how how are you liking your home base of Ohio? I, I like it. I mean, except for the winter drive. I'll specifically say the winter drive. Um, I like that um, where I teach, it's a small liberal arts school, and I feel like I have control over my studio, and I feel like there's a lot of potential in growing it, and that I'm the one to do it, if that makes any sense. So like I, I feel like I either get to shape or screw up the young minds that come into my studio, but I, I like that freedom, and I like that I can grow it and build a reputation here. That's, that's wonderful. Um, how would you describe the balance of... Uh running a, a university program, um, being a professor, and the, the creative work that you do. I know a lot of professors who find that they're so busy during the academic year, they actually can't get much work done, and they end up, you know, working in the summer or during the breaks to actually do creative work. So how do you, how do you balance the academic career with the creative life? Well, um, I'm not going to lie. This is only my, my third year full-time teaching, and I feel like it's still a work in progress. But um, what I find very helpful is something that Joel Hoffman told me when I first started out as a grad student, and I had the uh, thankless Monday through Friday 8 a.m. theory gig, mm. and I found myself being really tired at like 9 o'clock. And right. I'm a composer who I think it needs to be dark outside for me to work, or else I'm probably going to nap in the day. That's how lazy I am. But um, he said that when he's uh, first had kids, because I guess when you have kids, like there goes your time, right. it's gone. It's, it's definitely gone. Um, he said that um, he tries to think of his pieces 
like the concepts of them while he's necessarily like not sitting down at a desk or not sitting down at a piano. And I found that extremely helpful because your colleagues are right. I don't know when I find time to write music this semester. I've definitely going to do Tuesdays and Thursdays and I'm going to shut my office door and I'm not going to respond to knocks. I have this somewhat of a maternal instinct to just like open my door because I know it's a student, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to get writing and hopefully that'll happen. So it's a combination of thinking about the concepts, like whenever I can, like if I'm driving or if like I'm in the shower or if I'm like cooking something or if I'm out walking, just thinking about how I'm structuring my pieces. And I think that helps a lot with that balance. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've heard advice from people that also, um, you know, creative folks that have children. And, and what I've heard is that it, it uh, focuses you. you. You have a very limited amount of time to work. And so your work becomes necessarily more focused. Right. And to also kind of trust your first instincts, too, because you don't really have that much time to be like, is this really going to work? You just kind of have to be like, this could work. We're going to go with it. Now, if something doesn't work, obviously, you have to let it go. And, right. You know, that, that's just how it is with creative work. But just to kind of come up with a good idea and just to go with it and trust it. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your work a little bit. Let's dig into some of your work. It's clear to me that you have a, a very unique sense of humor, and it definitely comes through in, in your work. I'm thinking even of titles like 88 Exploding Ninjas or <laughs> Sounds from the Grey Goo. Uh, I mean, these, these could almost be movie titles, which is, you know, pretty interesting given, uh, given your background. Uh, you were talking about being really into film scores. Um, but you also reference current events and pop culture, and I'm thinking specifically here of two of your short comic operas, The Bubble, which is kind of a darkly humorous look at the U.S. housing market before its collapse, and this being probably my favorite of your titles, uh, Krispy Kremes and Butter Queens, the plot of which involves the food celebrity Paula Dean, who has, shall we say, an unfortunate accident. Yes, very unfortunate. Um, well, I have to say I can't claim 100% ownership to my titles. I fortunately um, um, have a, I jokingly say, I live in librettist, or at least I have someone whom I could bounce ideas from. Um, I find it interesting that you really like my titles because there was a time and place where I hated titles. I hated coming up with them. And in fact, I think one of my first blog posts was how much I hate titles. <laughs> and I realized part of the reason why I did it first is because I didn't have like a strong idea or a strong concept. And I usually, and that's kind of how I work today. But um, fortunately, I do live with someone who's also funny, or at least we have this similar twisted sense of humor and uh, we bounce ideas off each other of like what would be a good title or it would be a good idea for a piece. Um, for the operatic titles, uh, for Krispy Kremes and Butter Queens, that's actually something that my librettist for that, that's um, Vinnie Melly, whom I worked with in Atlanta, she kind of came up with that. She also came up with every single word combination that could rhyme with Paula Deen, which I'm sure we could talk <laughs> about later. I was like sick of it. I was like, Krispy Kreme does rhyme with Butter Queen. So does like, um, oh, I'm, I'm actually now blanking about all the words, but she had a rhyming book. And it was just like ridiculous, like how many words rhyme with Paula Deen. It's just hilarious. Great. Tell me a little bit about the work with the opera, the this North American New Opera Workshop. Uh, you're you're staging these short contemporary operas. Can you talk a little bit about that work? 
Sure. Um, NanoWorks, as we affectionately call it, or it's a shortened version of North American New Opera Workshop, kind of came because um, I realized that my operas or my opera ideas were not getting workshopped. And with operas, I feel like there's a huge potential to fail and fail spectacularly. And what composers desperately need, and there really isn't a market for, is what composers need and librettists actually need an opportunity to, like, let's say, read through a libretto, make sure the dramatic timing is there, or like have a composer like do a piano vocal um, musical reading of what they're working on and so that they get the dramatic timing right because I think one of the hardest things about writing an opera is the timing which yes I guess arguably when you're writing any kind of piece of music you have to think about the timing but you're actually now dealing with an audience and you're dealing with is it going to be dramatic is it going to be funny funny like comedy is especially hard to do mm-hmm. um, so so it's Pretty much um, the long story short of that, my librettist came up with an idea to write an opera about the housing bubble and specifically about a young college co-ed who's able to um, pay for a house pay with her student loans, which kind of <laughs> explains the housing bubble in a nutshell. At first, I thought it was a crazy idea, but then talking to each other, we're like, oh, this could be very like Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brechtian, mm, you know, yeah. we can do a parody of like, like have the, the, the dits, that's the student's name, uh, be kind of like the Charlie Chaplin tramp character and just make it really fun and tonal and ridiculous. And then I guess the advantage of having um, an in-house librettist is I could be really composer nerdy and be like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I like took my 18th century counterpoint skills and wrote something like a catch cannon where like the banker says one thing and the dean says another thing, but when they sing together, they say something really gross and disgusting yeah. and what they want to actually do to this student. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the, the, and, and we realized like, well, if we, we're just going to like, we felt like this opera needed to be birthed. Like it just needed to, to be written and it needed to get out there. And the best way to do it is to produce it yourselves. And then at the same time, we're like, well, other composers probably want to have their stuff workshop too. And at the same time, other singers want opportunities to create roles. I mean, they get to create roles and I think they have a lot of fun in doing that. And so we thought this would help like the Cincinnati arts community. And so that's, that's why NanoWorks started. So did NanoWorks uh, begin through a festival? The You mentioned in one of the notes to the bubble, the Cincinnati Fringe Festival. Um, how did you get started? I mean, so that was the genesis of it, but physically, how did you get the thing to logistically happen? Goodness. Um, what we did was we started small. So we actually did... Um, Oh, uh, the Cincinnati Classical Revolutions, because we um, we had a scene from the bubble. Well, we actually did my Krispy Kremes and Butter Queens, um, the story of Paula Des- Oh, sorry, Paula Death. Oops, Paula Dean, um, <laughs> unfortunate accident opera, which is only 10 minutes. We thought this would be great at Northside Tavern in a bar. You know, it's 10-minute opera. No, we're not going to scare people from it um, because a lot of people, we've noticed when we say, oh, I wrote an opera, they're like, oh, I got to brush up on my Italian. Right. I'm like, right. I don't speak Italian. Like, there, I, I can't, I mean, I could probably figure out how to set it. You know, it's easier to sing than English from what I hear. But, uh, no, it's just a 10-minute opera. If you don't like it, it's done so quickly. Just just stay and listen to it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this is all composers want is, like, their music to be heard. You know, like, at this yeah. point, I, I don't even think you have to like it. Just, just, just please stay and listen, please, pretty please. And so we started 
Secret Small, and then we as assembled a few other operas. We did a performance in Louisville. We did um, like we did one at the Art Academy, yes, through Cincinnati Fringe Festival. We thought the Bubble and the Krispy Kremes and Butter Queens opera would be appropriate, be very Fringe-like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. kind of like that sick, dark humor that the Fringe Festival tends to bring, which mm -hmm. is great. So, mm -hmm. um, and then we just try to do a couple of productions a season and, and we're not dead yet. So it's still going. So did you feel like, um, you mentioned these, you know, doing an opera in a bar, do you feel like opera to you has kind of a, a stigma of being sort of an elitist, uh, art form or how, how do you explain, uh, wanting to do an opera in a bar? I think elitist for the, like a grand opera, that's a little strong of a description. However, um, I think of people my age, I think of the young professionals, I think of young students, you know, those who may not have gone to an opera because they're thinking, oh my God, I do not want to sit through three hours of something I do not understand. Okay. So um, I just wanted to create something. The justification of having an opera performed in the bar is that it's accessible. You know, you could also have a beer, which is very much a, a big point in my book. If I'm going to go to a concert and it happens to be at a bar, I'm like, yes, I, I actually do love the idea of classical revolutions in that point in itself. Um, but also it's just, it just gets it out there. They don't have to dress up for it. They don't feel like they have to like know when to clap or when to not clap or what's the appropriate social behavior. It's like, look, you're here to listen to music. I think, you know, like if you're in a bar setting, you know that, okay, you should probably listen. You don't have to, if you want to keep sipping your beer and having like a small, quiet conversation with the guy next to you, that's totally acceptable, you know? So I just, the, the justification of having, let's say like small operas in a, like in the Northside Tavern, for example, is that it's just very low key and accessible. And, and was it something that you found that people responded to and have you had uh, some success in getting the opera uh, in other venues outside of Cincinnati? Um, yeah, I've, I've had some comments where we're like, whoa, I didn't know an opera could be like this. Um, we've done, uh, we were able to take our small operas once we performed with, um, Lexington Arts or Lex Arts in, um, Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I'm trying to think of where else. We, d we definitely did Clifton Culture Arts Center. Um, we recently did the cabaret, actually. We, um, we kind of did a double bill, um, queer-themed operas, um, one with, uh, Brooklyn composer Maria Contrera and another one with, um, Cincinnati composer, Eric Connectus and Eric's opera called Last Call was basically about like the last gay bar in a small town, which happened. We are actually able to do it at the cabaret at Below Zero, which is like where the the drag queens have their performances every weekend. So we literally would like do a performance of his opera and then we'd have to like like close up in 10, 15 minutes so that the drag queens could have their show on. And I thought that was amazing. <laughs> and we actually had one singer who's like, um, do you, are, do you have, are you getting a recording of this? Like I tried recording one of the, um, shows on my iPad, but there's a lot of walking back and forth from the drag queens. I'm like, I apologize for that. I said, although it makes the opera real when you have real drag queens kind of going back and forth. So I thought that that was, that was a lot of fun. And if, uh, if the listeners are interested to see these operas, uh, they're available on YouTube or through your website, jenniferjolly.com. I'll make sure and put a link in the show uh, post and in the show notes uh, so that people can find uh, this music and, and listen to it. Is there anything else about the operas that anything coming up, anything new in the works that you'd like to talk about? 
Yeah, um, for me personally, um, this is a project my librettist and I have been working on for a little while. It's uh, We're going to be writing a sitcom length, uh, Ron and Nancy Reagan opera. Uh, we were actually able to do some research in Los Angeles, like go to the Warner Brothers studio and look at production notes of uh, Ronald Reagan's most um, like his most liked film, um, King's Row. He thought that was like his best movie role. And basically the scenario is this takes place in the White House and Ronald Reagan wakes up and he's freaking out because he cannot find the movie script to King's Row. He needs to rehearse his lines. And Nancy Reagan's like, hey, um, you're president of the United States now. Uh, we are no longer actor Ronald Reagan. It's okay. You can go back to bed. And it all ends happy. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't have the complete libretto yet. Um, I think of like composer librettist scenarios. And right now that my librettist, we have like a wonderful working relationship and we still do. But now I only have the um, arias to Nancy Reagan and I'm freaking out a little bit. But I think we will have an opera by June. So Fascinating. <laughs> it, will, it will happen. So it may be the only only opera featuring uh the reagans yeah which is a little intimidating because there are other operas out there that have presidential figures sure why there's also ronald reagan was so iconic yeah in that i was talking to uh my composer friend daniel felsenfeld he's like i really think that ronald reagan has to be a baritone because everybody knows what he sounded like mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So these are some these like considerations you have to think about when thinking about the characters that you're writing for. Great. Well, sounds like an interesting project. I want to talk about another piece of yours that for me captures the sense of nostalgia that I think is also in your work, and it's a piece for a baroque ensemble called Spielzeug Strassenbahn. That title translates to toy trolley. And uh, you have a number of references I, I noted in your program notes, including uh, the title uh, and sort of the concept of the piece references the toy trolley from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that PBS TV show. Would you mind talking a little bit about that piece and, and tell us how it came about? Yeah, I was um, I was actually asked by a Baroque ensemble in Chicago to write a piece for um, that would be a companion piece to one of the Brandenburg concertos that Bach has written. And long story short, I decided to look at Brandenburg number five and to create the piece. And since in my music with my instrumental pieces, I do like to, I am for some reason inspired by where I'm located or the geography. And I really love Chicago, except in December when it's really cold because I'm from LA. Uh, but what I really liked about were the trains. Trains are so much fun to me. I, um, I'm from a place where we drive everywhere and I really hate the traffic there, I'm not gonna lie. So like the idea of trains and public transit and also the sound of trains and the coming and going and also where I live in Cincinnati, I can hear like the train break. So I was just all excited. I was like, I'm gonna write a piece that kind of combines trains because of Chicago and also um, the Brandenburg Prize. Like, so I used the same instrumentation that was kind of like the deal with this piece. Uh, and I was like, but what would really tie it all together besides like the Bach instrumentation? And I was like, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And then I knew that I had some kind of ADD brain, honestly, because I was like, <laughs> where does this come from? But I really like the trolley theme. And I really like the idea of the trolley going into the land of make-believe. It's like the trolley figure is like that messenger person, the, the person that accompanies you 
or the the object that accompanies you and talks to you in its little trolley language Mm -hmm. and takes you to the land of make-believe and then kind of takes you back to reality. And so I was kind of, with that metaphor, thought of like, okay, well, if this is going to be based on a Baroque piece, you have your fast, slow, fast movements. The middle movement would be your like land of make-believe and you have this trolley theme and that's kind of how the piece came to be. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful piece, and I'd like to uh, play a little bit of this uh, Spielzeug Strassenbahn. Great. So uh, another thing that you've been up to is blogging. So this is something that's very unique to you, but let's talk about this blog. Why compose when you can blog? How'd you get started uh, with the blog? Well, I was thinking about, well, I I think I needed a somewhat creative venue to kind of let out my angstiness, and you can't really do that in music. I mean, it'll work to a certain degree, but then it's like if I wrote mopey music this whole time, I just don't think I'd be as successful or something like that. So um, I, I initially started it because I just had thoughts about composing. And also, um, at the time I was about to turn 30 and the thing is my angsty 20 composer self was, I was thinking, I need to win some kind of composer prize. I need to win the ASCAP or BMI award because you have to be under 30 to do it. And there's kind of this like fatalist streak in me where it's like, I just got so many rejection letters. And for those of you listening, we all do. It's the thing. If you think about it, those who are losers, we're in the majority. Everybody's going to get a rejection letter somehow. And I thought it might be funny to post my rejection letters online and blog about them, like blog my feelings, yeah. which I should have been like composing anyway. But that's that's basically it. Yeah, I think all creative people can relate to that, especially those of us that you know write for grants or apply for funding or in this climate applying for jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've we've all experienced rejection on some level, and, but you've turned these into these kind of darkly humorous blog posts that you call composer fail. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you're and you're up to what some somewhere in the 80s or something like that. Yeah, I, I think I have like four sitting in my inbox right now, and I really should get on that. There might be a blog post where it's like all the fails, just like five of them, just bombard myself and bar- bombard all of you guys with like, here's the latest fail. Um, yeah, we all go through that, and it, I guess 
it came from the, the irony of the fail was that I, I really thought I was failing. Like when I was in my early twenties, I was like, maybe my music sucks. Maybe I hate my music. And uh, it's just unfortunate. I wish I can go back to my young self and be like, you don't suck. I mean, your music isn't as good to the, as the music you're listening to, but you just got to keep at it. So in a way, like toward the end of my like late twenties, I just wanted to own the definition of failure. You know, and be mm -hmm. like, sure, I failed, whatever. I'm still here and breathing. I'm not dead yet, so I'll just keep trying. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's there's something of a catharsis reading through those. Yeah. I, I, I called it like my free therapy, honestly, at the time, because I was like, well, I was a poor grad student. I should talk to people about it. And I was like, I'll just I'll just blog to myself. And I also, you know, doing doing the writing of the blog is actually not a bad exercise to like get your thoughts out there, because like when you're writing, you're thinking and you need to think as a composer. So um, it's definitely cathartic for me. I'm like, yep, whatever. It's, it's again, it's like owning the fails. Owning, owning your failure. Yeah. So have uh, I'm interested to know if doing the blog has uh, given you other new opportunities uh, through doing the blog and, and people finding you that way and then finding your music. Like, I wonder if it's created other opportunities for you. Um, it absolutely has. I can't pinpoint exactly. But um, one thing particularly that happened was um, Rob Diener, Diemer, he's my um, colleague at SUNY Fredonia, and it turns out we'll actually be teaching at Interlock in the summer together. And I guess he stumbled upon my blog. I really didn't think anybody was reading my blog. I mean, I would link it on my Facebook and be like, hey, friends, I wrote a blog post about how I got rejection letter number 35. Um, here it is. But I guess it has started a following. And one of the things that Rob did was he used to have a weekly gig at newmusicbox.org. And he did a profile on me, which I had no idea was coming. He's like, oh, come to SUNY Fredonia, meet my students. You know, we invite composers coming in. Why don't you do this? You're teaching at Ohio Wesleyan. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a good time. And then the next morning when I was supposed to drive up to um, Fredonia and I was attending the Bowling Green New Music Festival at the time, I woke up and I think my internet exploded <laughs> because he had this blog post is like, why compose, like, it was, it was called ellipsis, dot, dot, dot when you can blog and it's this whole thing about like how I wrote about failure and I'm like what just happened I don't <laughs> understand this <laughs> this is just my like haha funny I got another rejection letter type of blog but um, from that I actually had um, this conductor Miller Aspel he's a wind conductor he's like I read about you on this on new music box would you like to write a band piece and I'm like this is awesome and I I, I can't exactly pinpoint where other people have heard of me, but I'm pretty sure it's the blog. I'm pretty sure. Wow. I think, you know, part of the part of the impetus for me doing this uh, podcast was in an unlikely place, which actually listening to, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I, um, I don't read as many blogs, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts. And uh, one of the podcasting, you know, gurus these days is the movie director, Kevin Smith. And uh, he's always talking about, you know, inspiring people to get started with podcasting because it's, uh, you know, it's an unregulated media to the mm -hmm. sense that anybody has access to the technology and can do it. And exactly. um, I had this conversation with, uh, with a visual artist. His name is Mark Coven. He teaches at Utah State University. Hopefully I'm going to get him on the show. But we had a conversation. He had invited me to, some, uh, to a conference at Utah State, an interdisciplinary conference. And... Um, so we spent probably about 45 minutes or an hour just chatting about what he was up to and uh, 
you know, how he works. And we started talking about intuition in, 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 uh, creating works of art and, and how, how that figures into people's work. And anyway, we just had this conversation about creativity. And after I got off the phone with him, I thought, you know what? I wish I had recorded that because I'd like to go back and listen to that. And I, and I think other people would have been really interested, other artists and musicians and of any, you know, any stripe would have been interested Mm -hmm. in this conversation, you know, combined with, uh, you know, this thing like, here's your opportunity. It's an unregulated thing. You can, you can do this. So I, I sort of, that was the impetus for me doing this show. Um, and you know, it's interesting to hear like a similar story about, um, you just started doing it just because you wanted to. And, and that's with the technology of blogging and social media, it's something that a lot of people are doing. And, and here's an example of, you know, you getting a real life opportunity, uh, Mm -hmm. from, from that kind of work. And you know, the other thing that I hope to do with this podcast is to establish, connections with other artists and other collaborations and you know it's I think it's just good to support you know the artistic community is uh, a pretty small group when when you think of it Um, yep and so it's good to support each other uh, as we can and I think this is a great platform for doing that I mean your blog and and also things like this podcast yeah I was, I was just going to say, I, I, I'm very much looking forward to like seeing how your podcast progresses too in that regard. It's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt the show, uh, but I just wanted to drop in and ask that if you are listening on iTunes, to please go back and leave a rating or review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks, and now back to the conversation with Jennifer Jolly. Another thing that I'd like to talk about with you is the creative process. How does a piece begin for you? Well, I think it depends on who I am writing for. So I'm just going to give you guys a scenario, if that's cool. Um, So as you mentioned earlier, I was commissioned to write a piece for the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. They're made in Vermont series, and I am ecstatic. I'm so thrilled about it. And I know I'm dealing with a 10-minute orchestra piece, and part of the first thing I think about with any piece of mine is the structure of it, kind of giving like that outline, because I feel like if I think of an outline and I think of a structure, then I have a less chance of getting stuck or the, you know, the feared writer's block, which I, at this time in my life, I really can't afford to waste any time doing that. So, um, with the Vermont piece, sometimes I do talk to my librettist, my in-house librettist. And I think, I think like I bounce ideas off her and she was thinking like, you know, something that Vermont has, uh, well, first of all, it has like Champlain, but it has these, um, these fairies. And I was like, yes, I was like fascinated by this mode of transportation. I'm starting to notice in my music side note that I am fascinated by modes of transportation. Yeah, <laughs> um, sensing a theme. Yeah, I am sensing a theme too. And so like the idea of the fairies, like going across, like I've never, until I moved to Vermont, had to park my car on a ferry, you know, like take the ferry, right. Which I found fabulous, you know, and then you're on the, you're on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so my partner's like, it could be about, about like the ferry rides. And I was like, okay, I wasn't like a hundred percent one of one over by the idea, but it's a start and it wasn't a bad idea because I liked the idea of the mode of transportation. And so the more I think about it, I was like, okay, well, what if I, you know, kind of make this as a, my representation of when I lived in Vermont. Like I arrived at like on a ferry and then I had to sadly leave Vermont. It's just the time of my life to do that. Um, and then having some kind of like, I don't know, messenger type 
of persona. And I, I was thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I can do these brass corrals, like have a specific, uh, brass corral, kind of like what, um, not brass wise, but what Steve Reich actually does for music for 18 musicians. Every time you hear like the vibraphone chimes, you know, you're in a different part in the piece. Um, also, uh, Mazorsky does it with pictures of exhibition. And so, um, actually this past weekend talking to, um, my partner again, um, about, yeah, this corral theme. And I said, well, maybe something super natu uh, natural. And she's like, like champ, like the Lake Champlain monster. I'm like, no, 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 not like the Lake Champlain monster, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> kind of this idea of like, you're telling this story of like having, I guess the Japanese have like the, the river dragon kind of like accompanying you. And so now, as of now, my form is, is like this brass corral. That's kind of like this accompanying figure that I'll get the listener for the piece. And so, um, that's what I have so far. I, I mean, I, I, I go with structure. I kind of some, I guess I do tend to gravitate towards stories or maybe some kind of like inside joke I have in my head, but that, that's kind of how I work right now. That's interesting. I, um, whenever I write pieces, it, it tends to, um, I tend to stew on them for a long time. And then mm -hmm. whenever, uh, whenever the piece comes, it comes very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know how that, that process is for you. There's something in the air and you're, you're trying to find the idea. And, uh, for some, for some people, they have a very, uh, like Puritan like work ethic where they'll sit down every morning and, and where I know I talk to a lot of writers who do that, you know, that they, yeah. they sit down and they work on it every day for, you know, mm -hmm. start, you know, first thing in the morning, they go to the, to the computer and, and start writing, um, how do you approach the craft of doing it? Do you, do you work a little bit every day? Do you stew on things? And like, how, how is your process? I honestly wish I could write every day. Cause I, I read the same stories from writers who like, we have, like, we do it in the morning, we wake up early, we do it. I remember reading, um, in the book, uh, the muse that sings that like bright Shang like writes a little bit every day. Cause he, he made the analogy of like having a little antique shop and having to have it open. So you get that sale and we're available for that idea. So I wish I could do that. Unfortunately I do not. So I will say that I do constantly think about my ideas, like the form and the structure. And then when I have an afternoon, I do sit at the piano. I start sketching for like a couple hours. And then I have to admit, I think it's my lazy self. I think this is why I ended up starting blogging because I get distracted and I procrastinate. But when I have a deadline, then I start spending the hours. It's usually like, I don't know, like not late at night, but just after dinner, I just like I'm in sweats or something comfy and I just get it done. If that makes any sense at all, because like once I have the structure and once I have the idea and once I have a good idea of what my sketches are, then I can just like get to work and then start filling in the, the details of like the scribbling and bibbling at that point. Sure. And, and do you use, uh, the computer for your notation or do you, are you a pen and paper sitting at the piano type person or how are you, how are you working? I have to sketch with a pencil and paper. Um, and I like sketching at the piano because, um, the, I have ideas of like what it'll sound like in my head, but I just don't think it's as cool unless I like try to play them out in the piano or I like put my fingers down randomly. I, I, again, it really depends on the piece, but I really feel like I need that attachment to the piano to get some good sketches in or some good fleshed out ideas. And then once I have my sketches, then I find that I get lazy with like writing out all the details and then I go to the computer pretty quickly. We talked earlier about balancing the teaching and the creative life. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your uh, teaching life. 
Yeah, so I have a small studio of undergrads here. I teach at a liberal arts school. I don't teach at a conservatory. So um, I get kids who think they might be interested in writing music, but also have other interests. I have kids who are double major. Let's say one is a double major in chemistry. One is double majoring in um, neuroscience. And um, he's going to be playing baseball, which I find exciting. I'm like, have you heard of Charles Ives? He's like, no. I'm like, you need to know this composer. Um, so <laughs> so um, I kind of get a mix of backgrounds. But the one thing I do like about teaching at Ohio Wesleyan is the age group. I actually do like teaching undergrads. I do like teaching freshmen because I feel like I can make fun of them to a certain degree and it's funny, but that's my sick humor. Um, but I feel like I get to have them at the age of their lives where they're like excited to be adults, but at the same time, they're not quite there yet. And so I'm dealing with like a lot of insecurity, like, and I feel like I remember being that age and being insecure and again, back to the whole like idea of so-called failing where I thought I have to make it by the time I'm this certain age. And I feel like I'm able to tell them, look, being a composer, the good thing is your career isn't over at 30, like a ballet dancer. Okay. You can, <laughs> you know, you actually get better with age or at least we hope so. Like right. I can't guarantee that with everyone, but you know, you, you'd like to think you get better the longer you keep at it. And so I, I just I, I would encourage them and like other young composers just to keep doing what you're doing and you have to keep doing it. And yeah, your work is not going to be stellar because it's young work, but you need to practice doing it. And it's it's going to suck, but it's also going to be very rewarding. And if it's one thing I can go back and tell my 20 year old self is that you don't suck. You just need to have a little bit more confidence and you just need to keep you know, writing music, and most importantly, you need to get your music performed. Yeah. One of the things, because uh, I also share with you the, the teaching life, and one of mm -hmm. the things I always tell my students is that the most important thing is to stay on the path. Yep. Um, it's There are peaks and valleys along the way, but but actually the most important thing is just sticking with it and and waking up every day and being committed to to that life. And I think that, I think, would you agree that that's what it takes to, to be successful? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, um, the one thing that I like about my blog now, I never thought my blog would be used as this, but it's kind of like a teaching example in that, look, you guys probably think I'm some kind of grown up composer. Cause I have my doctorate and I have a job and I dress up and I'm all professional and professor like, but I still get rejection letters. They still happen. Sure. <laughs> and like they will always happen. Yeah. But you just need to keep doing it and yeah. have a focus and have an idea of what you want to do. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And with that, we conclude episode four of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane, and you can follow the show on john-lane.com. Or on Facebook, simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks again to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. Thanks to Jennifer Jolly for chatting today. Visit her website, jenniferjolly.com. I will also make sure and put some links in the show notes on my website. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.